It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In May of 1959, Queen Juliana of the Netherlands received a special visitor. Her guest was George Adomski, a 68-year-old Polish-born American hamburger stand operator who had gained considerable fame for claiming to be the first person to meet an alien from outer space. George chronicled this fateful meeting in his 1953 book, The Flying Saucers Have Landed, with a follow-up titled Inside the Spaceships, released two years later. The story traced George's friendship with a mysterious alien from Venus who contacted George to warn him of the dangers of nuclear war. George had his fair share of admirers as well as skeptics, and Queen Juliana's court was no different. Before the meeting, many of her advisors pleaded for her to cancel it, but she would have none of it. She had an avid interest in the paranormal, and besides, she said a hostess cannot slam the door in the face of her guests. Martin Roy of the University of Amsterdam told reporters from Time magazine that throughout the meeting, the queen sat there impassive, a hostess who does not want to offend a guest. However, the president of the Dutch Aeronautical Association, Cornelius Kolf, said, the queen showed an extraordinary interest in the whole subject. It seemed like they were using Queen Juliana's reaction to George's story as a means to express their own beliefs in what he had to say. Even within the ranks of an advanced nation's top scientific and military minds, there was no consensus on the truthfulness of George's story. And that's just how he wanted it. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial on the Parcast Network. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. This is the first of two episodes on George Adamski, known as the father of the 1950s alien contactee movement. Adamski gained notoriety as the first person to claim contact with beings from another planet. This week, we'll chart George's early life his encounters with a benevolent alien named Orthon, and his subsequent rise to prominence within the UFO world. Next week, we'll look into the various investigations into George's claims, including one by Edward J. Ruppelt, 
the head of Project Blue Book, the Air Force group that conducted investigations of UFO reports. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. It was the fall of 1953, and George Adomski was on top of the world. His newly released book, titled The Flying Saucers Have Landed, was flying off the shelves, and the once quiet hamburger stand where he worked was frequently packed with people desperate to hear his story firsthand. Despite hundreds of sightings since the UFO craze kicked off in the summer of 1947, no one had met one of the pilots of these mysterious ships. But in 1953, George Adomski released his personal account of an alien encounter, and the UFO community, and the world at large, went wild. The book was a massive hit. Its first printing sold out almost immediately, and a second and third printing followed within a month. Overall, it sold over 100,000 copies, and visitors arrived at the hamburger stand daily to hear George's talks on his meeting with the alien. Along with copies of the book, visitors could purchase a copy of the 8x10 glossy photo of the alien's ship that George had taken. The picture was notable for the close-up details George had been able to capture. A domed cabin and its porthole-shaped windows are clearly visible, with the iconic saucer-shaped bottom and its circular landing gear coming at the viewer. George would proudly tell anyone who would listen that Warner Brothers cameraman Pev Marley had verified the photo's authenticity. According to George, Marley said that if they were fake, the photos were the cleverest he had ever seen. Additionally, all the people who had accompanied George on his fateful trip into the desert on November 20, 1952, had signed a sworn affidavit that read, quote, I, we, the undersigned, do solemnly state that I, we, have read the account herein of the personal contact between George Adomski and a man from another world brought here in his flying saucer, scout ship, and that I, we, was, were, a party to and witness to the event as herein recounted." End quote. The photo, along with these additional witnesses, made George one of the UFO world's most credible figures. But not everyone bought into his story. Who was George Adomski really? Of all the people on Earth, why would an alien choose this humble hamburger stand operator as the person with whom to make first contact? What made him so special? Details on George's early life are somewhat sparse. He was born on April 17, 1891, in what was the German Empire, but is now Poland. When he was two years old, George's parents moved the family to New York City. In 1913, when George was 22, he joined the U.S. military and served in the 13th U.S. Cavalry Regiment that engaged with the famous Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa. After serving for three years, George was honorably discharged in 1916. 
he quickly got a job as a maintenance man at Yellowstone National Park. At some point in the early 1920s, George became interested in a pseudo-religion, Theosophy, founded in 1875 by a woman named Helena Blavatsky. Theosophy's basic goals are, quote, to form a nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color, to encourage the study of comparative religion, philosophy, and science, and to investigate unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in human beings, end quote. In 1926, George settled in Laguna Beach, California, most likely to be closer to the Theosophical headquarters in nearby Point Loma. By 1930, when George was 39, he decided to start his own movement, which he called the Royal Order of Tibet. This was the beginning of George's lifelong quest to command respect, to be seen as an expert on all matters supernatural. Teaching what he called a scientific approach to philosophy, George emphasized the connective harmony people shared. He likened his beliefs to all people being beautiful flowers in a vast garden where many colors and many kinds bloom harmoniously together. George firmly believed that if they tried hard enough, people could surpass any language barrier by using feelings, signs, and even sending each other mental images. George discovered that he had a passion for teaching his philosophy, and his students seemed to respond well to his teachings. They began referring to him as Professor Adamski, even though he had no formal education or merits that would earn him that title. He would introduce himself as such for the rest of his life. It was during this time that George discovered there was something he loved just as much as teaching, money. George founded the Royal Order of Tibet when prohibition was still in effect, and he was able to secure a special license that allowed him to make wine for religious purposes. However, he was able to make a tidy profit selling that wine for secular entertainment until prohibition was repealed in December 1933. When prohibition was repealed, George's cash flow dried up. If he wanted to maintain his lifestyle, he had to attract new followers. He decided that the best way to do so would be to write a book. In 1936, George released a text on the Royal Order of Tibet titled Wisdom of the Masters of the Far East. Although the book didn't sell well, it did bring in a core of loyal followers, most notably a woman named Alice K. Wells, who would prove to be a reliable financial backer for George in the upcoming years. Following the book's release, George put together a mail-order course that he promised would teach people the secrets of telepathy, but it didn't gain much traction. Perhaps no longer able to afford the costs of his Long Beach compound, George and a few of his followers moved to a ranch in Valley Center, California, that Alice Wells bought in 1940. The goal was to create a self-sufficient farming community, but the dry land in North San Diego County proved to be uncooperative with George's plan. In 1944, George convinced Alice Wells to purchase a 20-acre tract of land partway up the slopes of Mount Palomar, 
a 6,000-foot peak in San Diego County that featured an impressive astronomical observatory at its summit. Together, he and his students built a communal campground named Palomar Gardens. They also built a small hamburger stand in the hope that they'd draw in hungry tourists on their way up to the observatory. Living so close to the observatory got George interested in astronomy, and he built a wooden observatory platform at Palomar Gardens that housed his professional-grade six-inch telescope. When he wasn't performing manual labor around the camp or teaching his philosophy, he was gazing at the stars. Many visitors had the impression that George was connected to the observatory. And as with his false title of professor, he did nothing to correct their assumptions. It was clear that George enjoyed the feeling of authority, even though he hadn't earned it. On the night of October 9th, 1946, George and a handful of students gathered at Palomar Gardens to watch a meteor shower. He wanted to help gather data on the shower by counting the number of meteors they saw per minute. It was quite the display, but the real show was yet to come. Once the meteor shower concluded, the group gathered their things and prepared to go inside. But something odd in the sky caught George's eye. Previously, the heavens had been lit up with dazzling displays of flashing lights. But now, George was puzzled to see a swath of sky that was completely absent of any light at all. When George took a closer look, he realized what he was seeing looked to be a giant black dirigible floating motionlessly in the sky. From what he could tell, the craft had no visible cabin compartment or any external appendages to help it navigate through the air. During World War II, many new types of aircraft had been developed. George figured this was just a new aeronautical craft that was studying the meteor shower from a higher altitude. The only thing that made the craft seem unusual to him was its jet black coloring. As George and his friends marveled at the exotic craft, its nose pointed upward and shot away, leaving a fiery exhaust behind it that remained visible for several minutes after the craft had disappeared into the night sky. It turns out they weren't the only ones who saw the mysterious ship. Upon returning inside, George and his friends turned on the radio to the local San Diego news broadcast. They were surprised to hear the news anchor announce that a large cigar-shaped ship had been seen hovering over San Diego during the shower. The description of the ship exactly matched the one they had just seen. The next day, the Los Angeles Daily News ran an article saying that over a dozen people saw a large and weird object shaped like a bullet, and it left a thin vapor trail behind it. Many people believed it was an alien spaceship. Over the course of the next week, newspapers across the world would pick up the story. As George would later write in his book, he was working at the hamburger stand a few weeks later when he overheard a few clients debating whether the ship was extraterrestrial in origin or not. George had to chime in. He told them there was no way it could have come from another planet. He didn't think it was scientifically possible for any vessel to travel the massive distances between Earth and other planets. Just then, a group of six military officers who had stopped at the stand for lunch on their way to the observatory spoke up from a nearby table. 
According to George, they told him that while they couldn't give any details, the ship they were discussing was indeed not of this world. Although he was still skeptical, George adopted a more open mind to the possibility that the ship really could have been from outer space. He decided to keep his eyes on the sky for any more sightings. George had his next UFO sighting in the summer of 1947 when the UFO craze was starting to take off in earnest. On a Friday night that August, George was sitting alone on his yard swing, casually observing the heavens. Suddenly, an object emitting an impossibly bright light appeared above the mountains, moving from east to west. Another one appeared, and then another, and another. As the mysterious lights flashed across the sky, George's eyes lit up in excitement. He wondered if he was seeing a UFO. He dismissed the idea of them being lights from airplanes or helicopters because of their erratic movements. When George saw one of the objects suddenly stop and reverse course, he realized they could only be one thing, flying saucers. Coming up, George shares his sightings with the UFO community. And now, back to the story. It was August 1947, and George Adomsky had just witnessed a massive number of UFOs in the skies above San Diego County. As he observed the strange lights crossing the sky, George realized he should keep track of how many he saw. In all, George said he counted 184 of the mysterious objects, which seemed to cross the sky in single-file squadrons of 32 ships. As the last one passed across the horizon, it shot out two powerful beams of light, one southward toward San Diego and the other to the north toward Mount Palomar. Unlike his sighting in 1946, this strange event didn't garner the same coverage in the press. But George wasn't the only one who saw the flying saucers that night. The next morning, two scientists who George didn't recognize stopped by the hamburger stand. They were headed to the observatory and wanted to know if George had seen the UFOs the night before. When George told them how many he had seen, the scientist revealed they had observed over 200 of them. According to George, they didn't give him any specific information other than confirming that the objects were most likely interplanetary. Now, the only evidence that this conversation even occurred comes from George's writings, and so it must be taken with a grain of salt. After speaking with the scientists, George redoubled his astronomical observations, but he didn't have any luck spotting UFOs over the next year and a half. Since he hadn't gotten any evidence of the UFOs he saw in August 1947, he didn't make any statements to the press. But word was spreading around the area of his interest in all things extraterrestrial, and he would happily share his experiences with anyone who asked him. In late 1949, George claimed that four men stopped by his hamburger stand for lunch. George recognized two of them as Joseph P. Maxfield and Gene L. Bloom of the Point Loma Naval Electronics Laboratory near San Diego. The other two men, who George didn't recognize, claimed they were from a similar military facility in Pasadena. 
The four men had heard about George's interest in UFOs and asked him if he'd help them try to get photographs of one. George's setup for this task was ideal since his smaller telescope was more maneuverable than the large instruments at the Palomar Observatory and might be able to track UFOs more easily. According to George's version of the events, he suggested the possibility that whoever was piloting the flying saucers might have established bases on the moon for their interplanetary craft. They all agreed that this idea had merit, and George decided to focus his attention on the moon. George eagerly got to work, rigging a camera to the end of his telescope and pointing it at the moon. He didn't have to wait long. After making several unsuccessful attempts, George finally managed to take what he deemed to be two good photos of UFOs flying through space in early March of 1950. According to George, these photos seem to have been lost to time, and all that remains are George's assurances that they were of good enough quality to send to Maxfield and Bloom. However, he never heard back from them. But George didn't let their lack of response dissuade him from his belief that he finally had strong evidence of UFOs. Knowing people's appetites for anything extraterrestrial, he took his own copies of the photos with him on a speaking tour of social clubs around Southern California, for a small speaking fee, of course. A few weeks later, on March 21st, George gave a lecture on flying saucers at the Everyman's Club in La Mesa, California, an informal educational speaking club for men. In a time when just the mention of UFOs was enough to draw people's interest, George's possession of the two photos was enough of a qualification to earn him a lecture slot. A reporter named Sanford Jarrell from the San Diego Journal attended the lecture, and his story on George made the front page. Following the article, a reporter from the San Diego Union and Tribune called George to ask about his attempts to photograph UFOs. George admitted he had sent his two photos to the Naval Electronics Laboratory for analysis. But when the lab was contacted, its spokesman flatly denied ever receiving any such photos. Additionally, in a 1988 interview with UFO researcher Jan Eric Hare, Bloom denied ever asking George for help photographing UFOs. He acknowledged that he and Maxfield had been to the hamburger stand, but it was only to grab a bite to eat on their way up to the observatory. In this instance, it's down to George's word against Bloom's. But by name-dropping Bloom, George gave more legitimacy to his efforts to photograph UFOs. Whether or not George lied about Bloom and Maxfield, he didn't stop in his mission to get a clear photo of a UFO. On May 29, 1950, George managed to photograph what he believed were six UFOs flying in formation together against the backdrop of the moon. The picture, which clearly shows six glowing lights against what does seem to be the moon, was printed in the July 1951 issue of the paranormal periodical Fate magazine. George's efforts to photograph UFOs had finally paid off. He received a fee for the article, which also prompted requests from readers for copies of his UFO pictures. But it didn't take long for George's 15 minutes of fame to end. Doubters quickly came out of the woodwork, questioning both his credibility and motivation for taking the photos. 
George realized that to prove the doubters wrong, he needed a picture of a UFO that was so clear, nobody could question its authenticity. And if he made a few bucks from it, was there really anything wrong with that? Sometime in 1951, George began to hear whispers that UFOs were landing in the desert east of Mount Palomar, though from whom he declined to say. George made a number of trips into the desert, hoping he'd have better luck. He didn't. However, George remained undeterred. He relied on the saying, the secret of success is constancy of purpose. And fate seemed to answer his efforts with the arrival of new allies. In late August 1952, a couple named Al and Betty Bailey came all the way from Winslow, Arizona to visit George. They had learned about George's attempts to study UFOs from his article in Fate magazine and wanted to share their own experiences. Along with anthropologist Dr. George Williamson and his wife Betty, the Baileys had made trips into the desert hoping to make contact with UFOs. Like George, they had been unsuccessful. They thought they'd have a better chance at finding a UFO if they all made a trip into the desert together, using their combined knowledge to track any potential alien craft. The call to action came on the night of November 18, 1952. Dr. Williamson received a call from George who let him know he would be heading to a location near Blythe, California the next day. He asked Dr. Williamson if he and the Baileys could meet him on the morning of the 20th. Williamson promised they'd be there. George left Palomar Gardens around 1 a.m. on the 20th, accompanied by his devoted follower, Alice K. Wells, and Lucy McKinnis, his secretary. The Baileys and Williamsons were already waiting for them when they reached the agreed-upon location at around 8 a.m. The group then decided to drive into town for breakfast and plan their UFO hunt. As they ate, George mentioned that he saw an abandoned military training center and airport on his way into town. There was a road beyond the base that looked like it would take them to the bottom of a far-off mountain ridge. The group agreed it was as good a place to look as any. After driving about 11 miles, a strange feeling overcame George something was telling him to stop the car. Perhaps it was just intuition, or perhaps it was something else. Looking around in the desert, George realized that this particular patch of land was unique. The ground was less sandy than in other areas, and it was covered with sharp, jagged rocks. Dr. Williamson noted that the rocks were volcanic in origin, in addition to the rocks, there were bushes of silver-white holly adorned with blood-red berries. A cool breeze offset the warm desert sun. George noticed a small rise on the opposite side of the road. He and Al Bailey separated from the rest of the group to investigate what might be on the other side of it. George hoped against hope that this would be the breakthrough he so desperately wished for. All his life, he had searched for legitimacy, first with the Royal Order of Tibet, then with his obsession with UFOs. Could this finally be his chance to earn the world's respect? The sound of an approaching plane broke George's train of thought. 
He watched it come over the mountains and eventually vanish in the distance. As George turned back to the mountains, his eyes went wide. There it was, a spaceship. The silver, cigar-shaped craft flew silently in the sky. It slowly floated toward the group, almost as if pushed along by the wind. It stopped a short distance away, hovering in place. After a long moment of awed silence, the group burst into excited chatter. Alice told George to grab his telescope from the car so he could take a close-up picture of the ship. Betty Bailey had brought a movie camera, and Al wanted her to try and get the UFO on film. As with many supposed UFO witnesses, Betty claimed that by the time she was able to set up her camera, the ship was already back on the move, and so she couldn't get it in frame. As the group passed their two pairs of binoculars back and forth, Dr. Williamson noticed what looked to be a dark insignia on the side of the ship. As an Air Force pilot during World War II, Dr. Williamson was familiar with the American Armed Forces' various insignias as well as those of other nations. He didn't recognize this one. George quickly realized that the commotion they were making made it unlikely the ship would land for contact. If he took out his telescope now, the group would be even more conspicuous, and curious onlookers driving by on the highway might scare away the ship. But something in his heart told him the ship was there for him, and him alone. George asked Lucy to drive him about a half a mile down the road. Al Bailey came along as well, though he understood he'd have to wait with Lucy while George went by himself to meet with the ship. Lucy turned down a rutted dirt road and stopped the car at the base of a flat-topped hill. Just as George hoped, the ship had followed them. It hovered over the car while Al helped George unload his gear from the trunk. The wind made it hard to set the telescope up on the tripod, and it was very difficult to keep it steady on the uneven ground. But George knew there was no time to waste. Once the equipment was set up, Lucy and Al headed back to rejoin the others, leaving George alone with the ship. He was aware that if he did make contact with the beings inside the ship, there was a chance they might not be friendly. According to George, he asked his friends to leave because he didn't want to risk their safety. Of course, this also made it so that what happened next was impossible to verify. The ship disappeared before George could get a picture of it, but he decided to stay where he was for a little while longer. His patience was rewarded when he saw a flash of light in the sky about five minutes after the large ship had disappeared. A different saucer-shaped craft drifted between the saddle of two mountains and settled into a cove about a half a mile away from George's position. Wasting no time, George located the ship with his telescope and snapped a series of seven pictures. In his haste, George forgot to properly focus the camera. Loading more film into this rig was a difficult process, so he took out his handheld brownie camera and snapped a photo. But before he could take any more, the ship suddenly lifted off and disappeared to wherever it came from. Although he hadn't made direct contact with the ship, George was filled with a sense of awe. 
He had come closer to a flying saucer than ever before, perhaps closer than anyone had. He just wished he could have met whoever was operating that incredible spacecraft. Getting a good picture of a UFO was one thing. Actually, meeting an alien was another. As George gazed across the landscape, something caught his eye. No, someone caught his eye. He could see a man standing at the entrance of a ravine about a quarter mile away. He was waving for George to come to him. George wondered where this strange man had come from. He could see in all directions from where he stood and hadn't seen this man approach. Perhaps he was a prospector or geologist, or perhaps he somehow lived in this desolate stretch of land. Regardless, it seemed like he needed help, so George headed his way. As George approached, he could get a clearer view of the man. Something about the man struck George as odd. He seemed younger than George and had long, shoulder-length hair. He had uncommonly handsome features and large, expressive green eyes. But what really set the man apart was his attire. He was wearing what looked to be a brown one-piece ski suit, definitely not something most people would wear in the desert. It had full sleeves and pant legs with close-fitting bands around the wrists, ankles, and waist. To break the tension, the man offered his hand in greeting. George extended his own to shake it, but the man smiled and shook his head. Instead of taking George's hand, he placed his palm against George's without grasping it. The contact pushed away all traces of George's suspicion. Suddenly, he understood. He didn't know how he knew, but he knew. George's heart leaped in excitement. This was no man. It was an extraterrestrial. Coming up, George learns about the alien visitor. And now, back to the story. George Adomsky had spent the last half decade of his life pursuing photographic evidence of UFOs and the alien life contained within. Now, on November 20th, 1952, he was standing in the middle of the desert, palm to palm, with a mysterious alien. He felt almost childlike, awed by the presence of a being who surely possessed great wisdom. George gazed at the alien for what seemed like an eternity before realizing he wasn't going to learn anything about the alien just by staring at him. George asked the alien where he came from, but the alien shook his head with an apologetic expression on his face. He couldn't understand what George was saying. But George was undeterred. He hadn't come this far just to give up because there was a language barrier. George was beginning to understand why the alien had chosen him to make contact. For the past 30 years, George had been teaching his students in the Royal Order of Tibet that it was possible to communicate with one another by using feelings, signs, and even telepathy. If any human was capable of communicating with this alien, it was George. In order to ask the alien where he came from, George pointed to the sun overhead and circled his finger around it to indicate the orbit of a planet and said, Mercury. He circled it again in a slightly wider orbit 
Venus, then a third, Earth, and pointed down at the ground. The alien understood. He mimicked George's movements, stopping on the second orbit and pointing at himself, Venus. His voice had an almost musical quality to it. George wanted, no, needed to hear more of it. Using hand gestures, facial expressions, and the power of thought, George asked the alien why he had come to Earth. The alien communicated back that he came in peace, but pointed to the waves of heat coming off the ground. He then pointed towards the sky with a worried look on his face. George took this to mean that the alien was worried about the radiation emanating from Earth. He asked if the problem was from nuclear bombs and their ensuing radioactive clouds. The alien nodded. He made the shape of an explosive cloud with his hands and yelled, boom. He then pointed to a weed poking out of the ground and swept his hand over it. George nodded. If man continued to use nuclear weapons, the whole planet could be destroyed. Over the course of the next hour, George tried to learn as much about the alien as he could. He found out that the larger, cigar-shaped craft was the alien's mothership, so to speak, and that flying saucers were used for scouting purposes. Although this alien was from Venus, his people inhabited nearly every planet within the solar system, and many planets outside of it. Like the alien, other extraterrestrial beings looked just like humans. Without knowing they're aliens, you probably wouldn't be able to tell an alien apart from a human. Incredibly, the alien seemed to share most, if not all, of George's spiritual beliefs. He told George that, in truth, humans actually understood very little about what they call God. Unlike humans, who live according to what George called laws of materialism, the aliens people lived according to what George termed the laws of the creator. This shared belief system helped explain why George and the alien seemed to have such a strong bond. Of course, this part of George's story could also have just been a way for George to legitimize the fringe spiritual beliefs of the royal order of Tibet. George asked the alien if he could take a picture to commemorate this groundbreaking meeting, but the alien politely declined. Although he did closely resemble humans, he was worried that his distinct facial features would distinguish him as an extraterrestrial being upon closer examination. Additionally, if people were able to study a photograph of him, they'd be able to identify other members of his species who were trying to remain incognito. George understood. The alien's otherworldly handsomeness would certainly make him stand out if a photo of him was scrutinized too closely. However, once again, this is convenient for George's story, as it removes any evidence for skeptics to question. Although George could have stayed and talked to this friendly alien all day, he realized his friends might be getting worried about him. The alien understood that their conversation was drawing to a close as well. He began pointing to his feet and speaking in his native language, which sounded to George like Chinese mixed with an ancient guttural tongue. 
The alien stepped aside and made three sets of distinct footprints. George noticed odd markings in them. Judging by the alien's indications, he could tell the alien wanted George to record these symbols. Had the symbols come from details on the bottom of the alien's boots or through some unknown process? The alien then motioned for George to accompany him to his ship. George drank in every detail of the beautiful craft. It resembled a translucent glass bell. The upper dome was encircled by a ring of gears that glowed with incredible power. The lower, saucer-shaped portion looked like it was constructed with layers of shiny, smooth metal. Everything had a purpose. Not a single rivet was wasted. Although he didn't wish to be photographed, the alien did indicate that he would like to have one of George's blank film holders, which were essentially metal frames for single pieces of film. George happily handed one over to him and asked if there was any chance that he could take a ride in his ship. The alien sadly shook his head. George understood that the alien had to get going, but he knew in his heart that this wouldn't be their only meeting. As George watched the alien board the ship and take off, he felt like a piece of him was leaving with it. At the same time, he felt a deep joy over what had just happened. George realized how privileged he was to have made contact with a being from another planet. As the ship disappeared into the sky, it occurred to him that he had never even asked the alien's name. Returning to the set of footprints the alien had left, George laid a ring of stones around them so he could find them again. He wanted to share this incredible discovery with his friends and knew that Dr. Williamson could make casts of the strange symbols. Once he got back to his friends, they enveloped George in a huge hug. They had observed George's interaction from a distance and had seen the ship take off into the sky. Although they had desperately wanted to join George, they respected his wishes and kept their distance. George led them to the footprints the alien had left. Luckily, Dr. Williamson had brought plaster in anticipation of making casts. As an anthropologist, it's certainly possible that Dr. Williamson would have brought these materials in anticipation of making an important cultural discovery. It's also possible that he made the casts after the trip as a way to legitimize George's story. Both Betty Williamson and Betty Bailey took photos of the prints, but in another stroke of apparent bad luck, the photos came out blurry. Regardless, the Williamsons and Baileys were beside themselves with excitement. On their way home, they reported the whole thing to a staff member of the Phoenix Gazette, a newspaper in Arizona. The paper ran the story on the front page of their November 24th issue. The story included Alice's sketch of the footprints and a photo of the UFO that George had taken. Much to his disappointment, it came out blurry like all the rest. The photo shows a landscape of the hills where George claimed his meeting with the alien took place. In a saddle between two hills, there's a small dark smudge that when zoomed in, could potentially be the disk of a flying saucer. For those who are inclined to believe George's story, it's compelling evidence. 
For skeptics, it's nothing more than a dark smudge in a hilly landscape. Upon returning home, George stayed on high alert for the alien's return. The alien had borrowed George's photo plate, and George was certain he'd return it soon. He didn't have to wait long. The ship returned a few weeks later. Around 9 a.m. on December 13, 1952, George was outside his house when he saw a familiar flash of light in the sky. The ship stopped in a nearby valley a little over a half mile from George's house, hovering about 300 feet in the air. George tried again to photograph the ship. Remembering his previous failed attempts, George took painstaking effort to make sure his shots were properly focused and exposed. The ship came within 100 feet of George. He anxiously waited for what would happen next. Unfortunately, and again, conveniently, the alien simply opened a porthole on the side of the ship and dropped the film onto the ground. Luckily, the film was undamaged. As George ran to pick it up, his Venusian friend gave George a friendly wave as the ship rose into the sky and disappeared. George immediately left to go develop the photos he had taken of the ship, along with the film the alien had just returned to him. George was overjoyed when the photos he took of the ship came out as clear as day. This picture was the low-angle shot that he would later sell at his hamburger stand. The photo's extreme detail meant it couldn't be dismissed as a trick of light or optical illusion. The photo that the alien had left George was just as amazing as the photos of the ship. The alien had imprinted a picture of a mysterious symbolic message on the film, similar to what he had left in his footprints. To this day, no one has been able to decipher these strange markings. Perhaps it's because the symbols are meaningless squiggles, or perhaps it's because the symbols belong to a language that the human mind cannot grasp. Armed with what he felt was incontrovertible evidence, George decided to write an account of his encounter with the alien. He was inspired by the alien's message of peace and hoped he could do his part to help spread it across the world. The extra money from book sales wouldn't hurt either. George sent his manuscript to fellow UFO enthusiast Desmond Leslie, who was publishing a book of his own on UFOs. Leslie was impressed with George's account. He added it onto the end of the book, which was called Flying Saucers Have Landed, and was released in September 1953. The book's success gave George the credibility he had craved for so long. His lack of formal education or official titles no longer mattered. There were many people who had seen UFOs, but he was the only one who had met an alien. George's story quickly spread as newspapers across the globe wrote about his experience with his alien friend. People flocked to Palomar Gardens from far and wide to listen to George as he held court in the jam-packed hamburger stand. They wanted to hear all about the Venusian, and he was all too happy to oblige them. But with fame comes scrutiny. Along with many admirers, the crowd that journeyed to Palomar Gardens to listen to George's story also included many skeptics. Among this group was a U.S. Air Force captain named Edward J. Ruppelt, the man in charge of the top-secret Project Blue Book. 
George had made many fantastical claims in his book. Now it was up to Ruppelt to decide if these claims had any merit. Next week on Extraterrestrial, we'll go into the various investigations into George's story. Will George's story withstand Ruppelt's litmus test, or will he be exposed as nothing more than a con artist and a fraud? You can listen to Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. We'll be back next week. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Batten. Extraterrestrial is written by Alex Benedin and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. <laughs>